All right, everybody, welcome back. It's been a little while. We are, I, I mean, we're hot on the heels of so much change, so much change. So many people saying so many good things about Black Friday, Cyber Monday, people heating it up on the Twitter with CPC debates. Uh, the CPC matter. The CPC matter, I, which I have, I, I can't help but ask you. I've, I've got to ask you. But dude, what's been happening? What's been cooking at Nude? What are you hearing from friends of yours? Uh, and how was Black Friday, Cyber Monday? Yeah, you know, Black Friday, Cyber Monday treated us very well. We had been in a little bit of a slump, you know, for three months from about August through October. And it, it was just, what broke? But Black Friday this year, we saw record-breaking numbers. We saw about a 19% increase year over year in terms of revenue. Our efficiency Dude, a lot higher You must well. be the majority of Shopify in that case. Shopify was also 19% year. <laughs> okay, good. We're writing the market. Good, good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good, you want to grow with the category, right? You always want to compare in your benchmark because a lot of people are like, oh, we saw growth. Well, did you see as much growth as the rest of the category? That, that's helpful. Thank you. Actually, I, I didn't know that. I completely missed those news. Actually, uh, you beat the category because Shopify's growth includes new merchants. So like tucked into that 19% is new merchants. But yours is obviously pure year on year. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, it, it, we were also more efficient. Our marketing efficiency ratio, our MER was up. That said, our AOV was down. This year, we took a little bit of a different stance and we... Our, our hand almost got forced here. So we are in Best Buy and we're in Target and our retail partnerships discounted down. And whenever you have a complete price parity, you do get a little bit of leakage, right? But you have to feed the beast. If your customers aren't shopping on your Shopify website, that is one less conversion signal that gets sent back to your ad auctions to then optimize for the next purchase. And so if you are sort of like choking out that signal and those people are buying in other domains, such as Amazon, for example, you're not getting that feedback loop and you could see some loss of efficiency. You could be a learning phase. It may be harder to scale. And so we dropped our price down to a level that was a bit uncomfortable, but we had to do it in order to sustain competitive pricing, you know, when we're looking at sort of an omni-channel strategies. And it was... A blessing in disguise. When when we dropped that price down, consumers just ran through our front doors, cleared our shelves. We were more efficient. So AOV took a big hit. AOV was down about 11%, but our conversion rates, our efficiency, our return on ad spend was so much higher. And when we started to look at the contribution dollars and the contribution margin, Year over year, we were we actually were healthier. We had more padding, and we actually were driving a higher volume. And I think this is where it's important. You know, that I saw this this tweet the other day, or, or you know, I don't even know what we call the X tweets now, but we saw this tweet uh, where someone was calling out that the next generation of marketers need to have sophisticated and advanced financial literacy, and it's absolutely true. It's it, you can't look at the numbers beyond just return on ad spend. You really have to understand the unit economics, the gross margin of your product, the return rate of that acquisition channel as well, and really calculate down to a contribution margin. You might be driving scenarios where channel A has a five percent return rate and your ROAS is a two x, 
versus channel B, your ROAS is a 2.1, it's higher, but your return rate might be 15%, completely different demographics. And when you like look at it at a surface level, it's like, oh, this channel is working better than this one. Let's spend more here. But when you look at it at sort of a down to the contribution dollar and volume, and you take into account your return rates, you may end up finding that this channel with the lower ROAS actually produces more profit down long-term for the business. So, you know, this whole notion of financial literacy and understanding your bottom line, understanding the unit economics and how they all piece together over a long-term period, it's so crucial. It allows us to sort of leave ego at the door as well when we look at decision-making, totally. prices and promotion. It's like, no, I don't want to cheapen my brand. It's, you know, you have to really understand, the, you know, the money that's going into the bank. Dude, you said, you said a few things. I mean, you tucked like so much in there, so I'm going to start digging if that's okay. So... When you said like your conversion rates were up on a percentage basis, so that way, like we're not talking about any absolutes here. What was the percentage lift that you saw when you started doing the, Lower the price. deep discounting? Yeah. 12%. So we saw a 12% improvement in our conversion rates. And what was the relative discount that you offered? The discount was essentially like $20 off. So it brought our price point from a 189 price point tool around a 169. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. So it was basically like an 11% dis. So, but this is super interesting because I guess what people don't like fully appreciate this is an 11% discount on price. So on GMV, mm -hmm. uh, leading to like a 12% lift in conversion rate, which mm -hmm. again, you have to do the full flow through financials to see like, wow, if I can do that and I can scale that, actually my contribution dollars out goes up. Yeah. Which like, if all you did was like those first surface level stats, like it would, you would think like, oh no, 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 I'm just like trading this for this and it doesn't work. Yeah. The other beauty of it as well is we, it, it sort of a, allowed us to scale more. We were, you know, when we were driving many more conversions than previously, the, the volume of conversions and purchases that were being sent back to the platforms were a lot higher. And so this kind of let our TikTok ads overnight go from zero to $15,000 a day in spend. So we're on pace to do about $400,000 in spend in, on TikTok, whereas before we were spending like $20,000 a month. So... You know, when you think about, well, how do we sort of leverage and gamify and take advantage of these ad auctions to scale faster? It, it, there's like these sort of downstream effects that you don't really, they, they don't really pop up until you actually go through it. And you're like, well, holy crap, this is, you know, maybe if we had kept the same price, we wouldn't have been able to get to the level of spend that we're at with a new channel as quickly as we've gotten. And, and there's some other factors too, right? It's not so much... As black and white, it's not just the discounting. We worked with a new provider to improve our, our website speed a little bit. We, you know, we have some more creative and creative testing as well. And so there are some other factors that play into this, but a, a lot of this was largely attributed to the, to the decrease in, in price and just giving people, you know, a good deal. But yeah, totally. I mean, I think like it's easy to, it's easy to like say like, hey, you know, we're doing so many different things. It's, uh, and, and like, that's always true. But at some point it's like, hey, like we kind of know, like what are the key levers and learning those key levers are super important, right? So it's like, hey, you like you guys, you've learned, hey, it turns out that people are out for a deal. Like, I, I guess like, let me ask you a different question. Once you learned that, how did it change your future planning? I guess like that's really what that's really what I'm most interested in, right? Like 
as a brand, it's like, hey, there's all these things that you have, like you have assumptions, and then you go to a place of discomfort, exactly like what you just described it as. And then you have a learning. And now that learning, how do you incorporate that into future planning, both for this holiday season and for next year? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. One, we are extending this pricing. We're extending this sort of this promotion and this offer. We've extended it into December and we plan to finish the year with the same offer. It's funny, we actually raised the price back up after Black Friday. We raised it up on that, the week of the, that Tuesday uh, after Cyber Monday. And it feel like it was an immediate impact. We were like, oh my God, change it back. So we changed it back and I was like, okay, things corrected itself again. We're keeping this price the same. In January, we're going to actually go through the right exercise of doing some price testing where we've done this before, but we did it in the opposite direction. We actually tried to raise the price. So we ran a basically a four cell test with tranches of $10 increments on price. And we were optimizing for revenue per session and trying to like do some back of the napkin contribution dollar uh, as well. And it, it, it failed. It was a test that we were like, no, we shouldn't have done this. Or we, we you know, we learned that the price that we're at right now is, is the better price. So we're actually going to go back to the drawing board and consider retesting this, but going backwards. So, you know, we're going to start at the 189 and then go back maybe in tranches of 10 and see like, is there a sort of a breaking point where you just maximize your efficiency? And for us, our goal is world domination, right? So it's if we can get this product in consumer's hand as we build out a, a product roadmap and product pipeline, we can then have, you know, these customers in our database are going to be loyal to Nude and we can continue offering them um, better solutions that are out in the market uh, than what's out in the market. And, you know, I think for, so that's one way it's impacted sort of what we're, how we're going to continue to, to operate is one, we're going to extend this offer and promotion. We're going to do price testing and actually get some, like some sound data on this in, in January. And then two, when we look at launching new products, we're really going to start with sort of a price testing first approach because a lot of the assumptions that we make, like when we looked at our price, it was like, well, it's always been this way. Like, why would we lower it? Why would we increase it? It's always been this way. We always would think about, well, can we increase the price? But I think when we launch a new product, we're going to look at it and go, okay, what are the different tranches of the price point that we could, you know, we can bring this product to market with? and do that price testing from the get-go and then basically optimize off of that and maybe do some price testing once a year and just continue to sort of optimize that that product and, and that engine. And when you think about price testing, are you going to do it by isolating geos or are you just going to do like a true just split test on Facebook and yeah. allow Facebook to just basically split the audience or like how do you think about it? Because Great. It's, price testing has this weird like quality where that person if you do the A-B test on Facebook uh, and you're using like a tool based on the campaign, it's like if they come to your website through a different channel, they're just going to see something different. No, so. a, the first time we ever did offer, it wasn't even price, it was just offer testing. We were trying to like different ways of positioning the product. We actually went to a new market. We went to Canada. So we were like, okay, again, as a playground, let's try it out. We learned some things. It was a terrible way to test. Do not recommend it. Because when we try to bring those learnings into the US, it flopped. This was when we were working on an app. So we were run, running a subscription, a membership, and it was you would buy the product, you would get the subscription, we'll hold you accountable. And we were doing this to you know work on building 
some repeat. And so it worked in Canada. We're like, this is incredible. The take rate's there. People are subscribing, applying it to the U.S. Didn't translate one-to-one. Not the best way to test. When we do price testing, there's a partner that we work with. They are a, it's a Shopify app. Basically what this app does is it duplicates your product and it creates like ghost variants. And it yeah, yeah, website yeah. Visitors. So your website visitors come to the website, they get cookied and they get assigned one of those variants. And whether they go into a Facebook ad or a TikTok ad later, they click on it. And as long as your ads don't show the price, they'll click on it, go to the website, and then they'll be shown that variant consistently, regardless of sort of the entry point. It's not a perfect solution. I think I don't. the cookie isn't like a lifetime cookie. Uh, it can get cleared out. You also run into cross-device issues. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Cross-browser, yeah. like all sorts of things. Yeah, it's not, it's definitely, it's far from perfect, but it's the best, but better option that I've found. Um, you want to be able to tag those customers too, right? Because it's not just like, oh, what's the initial sort of like take rate and what's the initial conversion rate, but also like, are they returning the product at different rates, you know? Someone that's paying less might go, this is a sunk cost. I don't need to return it. Someone that's paying more is absolutely going to go return it. So maybe your conversion rate's higher on the, or, or lower in one end of the spectrum, but then your return rate might be different. And so when you're thinking about, you know, your cash flow and your long-term EBITDA and contribution dollars, you want to, you kind of want to be mindful of that too. Like what is sort of the downstream effect of someone buying the product at a certain price point? So this is where that price testing is important, running it for a couple of months and then just, you know, kind of taking a moment to look at what happened across those different corporate customers. Yeah, totally. Dude, what's your view on the CPC? Right. <laughs> this is a great question. Like, like, it's like, I mean, the way that, did you read everybody's comments out of curiosity? Oh man, I couldn't I, help I, myself. I read all of it. I was like, read all of it. too spicy. Yeah. I read about 60%. I was like, I was looking for new opinions because here's, I, I have a very non, I don't think I have a controversial take on this. The reason why I don't have a controversial take is because I understand both sides. I got into advertising with Google, okay? And then within Google, I moved over to display. And then I actually, like Facebook ads came late later for me, you know, through like my journey. So ad auctions like Facebook, OCPM, optimized delivery auctions. Yep, yeah. CPMs, I'm sorry, cost per clicks don't matter as much. They matter. They still matter because you're like, it's just, it's back to those fundamentals and those unit economics. If you have an insane or a gross, like a high cost per click, you need to be able to sustain a very high conversion rate in order for it to make, for it to make sense. Now with these BPM auctions, it will do that, right? It will like, yeah. So this is the I, issue. Yeah. That's the, the, the kerfuffle. The kerfuffle is like the better you make the conversion rate on your website. The, see, I will tell you the one thing that is that Facebook and Google are very good at. They're good at driving the auction to yeah. maximize the money that they make. I mean, this is that they make. So here is 100 percent certainty that this impression is going to convert. I'm going to charge you a premium because I know. Totally. So it boils down to the auction's confidence level. So this is where like people that have high cost per click, so you might be running into there's a, there could be other issues, right? You could be running into like a slow site speed. Your your website URL sucks. Oh, of course. You're getting, yeah, you're getting charged a premium because your page, oh, your ads get a lot of like hides or or reports like that. That's true. But when you have ad auctions like Meta, 
or Google. And I think even TikTok does this too. I'm, I'm testing some of the smart campaigns and I'm seeing fluctuations in the cost per clicks and the, through CPMs. But you see this, whenever you have these ad auctions that have 100% certainty that they're going to drive a conversion, they will charge you the max amount. They, there's like, there's certainty there. Why not take advantage of that? Now on the flip side, when you have ad auctions that are a bit nascent or aren't OCPM driven. Um, I don't think Twitter is an OCPM auction. If it is, it's not the best, but that's where, yes, cost per clicks absolutely matter. When you're buying native, when you're buying display ads, you are absolutely looking totally. at your click through, you're looking at your cost per clicks because you're not buying sort of this predictive ad auction. You're buying media. You are buying media and you're trying to optimize towards a price point where it makes sense. And I have a great example of this. Actually, we were, and maybe it's not a one-to-one a -one example, but we were running some tests with podcasts, right? And the, what it boiled out to was like my cost, my CPMs were around like $15. And based on the pixel, we were seeing that we were getting about a $7 cost per click. And I did the math and I like looked at just the breakdown of, you know, cost per click, CPM, the cost per click to conversion rate, to AOV, to, you know, to, to revenue, to ROAS. And I was like, this is losing us money. I went back and I negotiated down the CPM. And by negotiating down the CPM, people were still like at a certain, at, at the same percent, were still going to the website. So think of that as my click to rate, but that lowered my cost per click essentially. And now everything just started working. And so we went from a $15 CPM where things were crappy to a $10 CPM and suddenly things started working and we were like driving revenue and this thing was starting to pay for itself. So cost per clicks matter. However, they don't matter as much with auctions like Meta. And I think this is where marketers Dude, see, I'll differentiate like media buying and a Facebook advert, like media buyer and like just marketing in general. In the lens of marketing and advertising, cost per clicks matter. If you're just a Facebook media buyer and you, like that's your thing, you, yeah, you you don't care about cost per clicks. You've got other stuff to worry about, like you know, hook grades and uh, ROAS. Dude, my, this is going to sound super spicy, and like you know, I'm not here to like make any enemies, but I'll tell you there was one tweet that I was like pretty dis disappointed in, where it was like the Do you know Veros, the yeah, benchmarking yeah, yeah. tool? Okay, and so like basically. I mean, this I loved. So I think it's the founder who like presented data on like CPCs and on like, because they have this like cuts based on like, are you a high performer or middle right. performer? And it turns out that there's a correlation between low CPCs and high performers, right? So like on this chart, it's like low CPCs on average are seen by high performers. Now, the kerfuffle of introducing that data into this debate, this is the part that I was disappointed by. It's like introducing the data into this debate. It's like everybody sees what they want to see with the data like that. That was the problem that I had with it. It's like the correlation doesn't actually tell you anything, um, right? Like maybe people with low CPCs are paying more attention to their site speed and to their load times and to like... Right. You have no idea what the underlying variables are, what the hidden variables are, which one is causal, what is the directionality. And so it's like, he actually presented the data, like, I think in a very reasonable way. Yeah. But the choice to present the data in the context of the, 
that's a debate. <laughs> it's like, man, like you are just, you're just like, you're, you're just like pouring gasoline oh, on this fire. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, why would you do this? That's the thing that I was doing. Come on. Like, even, like, I'm sure you know that this is just gas. Yeah. Some people want to see the world burn. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate, so I always appreciate when partners like Barrows and who else does this? No Commerce. They do a good job. Oh, with this. dude. When they're willing to share, like, they're just plethora of data and, and providing insights. But to your point, they often do lack a little bit of context. And I think this is where, you know, and, and my CEO and founder, I think he's, he does this well and he's taught me this and I, you know, I try to practice this now, but having a bit of skepticism when you review stuff like this and like asking the questions um, to really validate it and not taking it as fact is absolutely important. You know, just, yeah, lean, lean with a bit of skepticism, especially when you look at platforms like this. And it's dangerous because what's happening, you'll get senior leadership or you'll get someone that sees that. And they, like, without the context, they go into their, you know, their marketing team. And they're like, why are our costs per click high? It means that we're not performing. We have to, you know, so yeah, this stuff can be helpful, but it can be taken out of context. And I think that does create some dangerous environments and situations for people that, again, don't know how to parse that data and have a little bit of that skepticism to ask those questions. Well, who's the data set? How maybe cost per click is correlated with, to your point, people that care about their site speed or have high investment in CRO. Yeah. I mean, it went, when I was working with a couple of the retailers and Fortune 500 brands, they were driving 40 cent cost per clicks on, on ads. 40 cent. Oh cost. yeah, because on, on open internet paid media, it's like, super cheap right yeah. so but they also have the brand like brand equity there's years and years of brand equity you see you see an ad from uh macy's and and it stands out they don't have to do you know yeah totally they are you know who macy's is and so people click they engage they, you know, they visit the website and um, or like if i already use your world as an example it's like gillette has the advantage of like if somebody's thinking about shaving and they see a gillette ad like it, 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 like there's not a lot of work that they need to do at this point, right? No, so. And say one of those brands or companies are in that data set, it's, oh, high performers, high spenders have low cost per clicks. Well, you know, who's in the data set? So yeah, I agree with you on that. I think th it, it sort of brings us next, this next discussion and, and maybe it's to say for another time, but I'm very curious about testing upper funnel activity on Meta. Upper funnel, so like, actual landing page view and reach and traffic objectives. I, I'm, I'm setting up a match market test. I can do like a quick Prezzo or an overview of like how I found my, how I cut my markets up. First, how Dude. I cut my markets, how I cut them up into different cohorts. And basically like, these are the states and the markets that I'm going to run reach against. And I'm going to run another one, video views and reach. And I'm going to run another one that's like landing page views. And I'm going to see like, okay, these markets, like once I activate them, what ends up happening to sales? Do I have some markets that just like take off or are they just going to be consistent with the rolling averages? So, you know, that, I don't know. I have this, like, I've been talking to other people and they're like, this is even people, some people at Meta. This is basically like an experiment, right? Like you're yeah, running an incrementality test. Yeah. yeah. It's an issue. You know what? Poor man's inc it's a poor man's match market test is what I'm calling it because oh, yeah. using any tools, this is like 
So three, I'm looking at Shopify and I'm exporting by state and zip code. And I'm like, how do I group these up? So it's not a perfect methodology. I'm sure I'm going to get some experiment. Dude, here's uh, here's yeah. what we should do. You should run it. And then we should get Olivia to come in and you should talk about what you did and have her comment on it and have her comment on like, because look, there's a bunch of people, look, let's just be honest. There's a bunch of people in the D2C ecosystem that's never going to buy a house. Okay. Like it's just too expensive for them. But at the same time, it's super valuable to learn like, hey, here's like how you can do it on your own. Here's how you could improve it. And then it's like, yeah, house is one of the tools that could help you. Right. And I think that it'll be super educational for people. Right. Potentially. What do you think? I think that'd be good. I would love to see how far off this method is like, you know, could we do a version where it's house and then another version that's like the poor man's match market and then like see like, did this create a, you know, is this good enough or are you just being misled when you like try to do it on your own and you should work with someone like house? You know, I think it'd be valuable. It'd be a valuable discussion. I look, I'm a firm believer of of experimentation and in, in platforms like House, media mix modeling, and experimentation to calibrate that. I mean, it's why we even started this podcast. That's it. I think to your point, it you know, it's wise for people to be able to play, like put their hands on it and like do the thing, um, so that they can conceptually understand. So that when they go and have these, when they grow to a size where they can have these discussions with house, it's like, you're not educating that client. You are just like, they get it. They did it. They know what's going on. They actually understand and appreciate now the complexities because of how, you know, how difficult it can be and how foggy and nebulous the data can be. Yeah. I think it'd be wise. Let's, uh, you know, we can reach out to Olivia and, and see if she's going to poke holes in it. I know she's going to look at so Brian, what are no, you? No, no, but, but I think that's going to be, that's going to be the, I think it's going to be awesome, honestly, right? Because it's like, yeah. hey, like, see, the, the, the real question is like, is it good enough for what you're trying to solve for given the size of your brand? Because see, like, I think that's like, also, like, like what we talked about in the very beginning, right? If you're only one chat, look, if you're under $10 million brand, Honestly, the good enough is you should just be scaling on Facebook, driving ads to your website, and you shouldn't be doing anything. Honestly, you really shouldn't. And you could like easily scale. I mean, not easily, but you can scale to 10 million if you figure out how to do that well. And all you need to do is look at the in-platform metrics and your PL, right? And it's yeah, like, and so it's like, literally, it's like, hey, what is the good enough at every stage? And like, where do you get into the gray zone of like, we're starting to peek around the corner of this is not good enough, right? And so I think that's why it becomes super valuable is to have that discussion. Because people don't know, right? Like everything under the sun can help you, but is it actually useful? Yeah. So I think it's, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And a topic like this, like match market and geolift and just general experimentation, I think it's more tangible, right? For people to start thinking beyond analytic platforms and attribution platforms and like think about like you know designing experiments but media makes not only going to be a, a bit of a challenge but this is a good start this is i think a good stepping stone to get brands and operators to sort of you know start looking at and knowing what's ahead and how to prepare for that and how to like think about it and how to potentially execute it you know in-house until you're ready to then make the leap to work with a partner like House or, you know, some of the others that are out there. Totally. Well, let's make that out. I had one. Oh, I was going to say, all right. So we, we are going to do that. So I had one other question for you. So I've been having, I went to this like 
retail dinner a few days ago and it was like png and pepsi and gap and like these sorts of people right and the most interesting thing when you talk to these like very large companies is and this is going to be super interesting for the brand operators out there when they think about acquisitions of brands they think about it literally in only like it's like a massive barbell okay it's like Either they want to like work with you like right at the beginning or at inception, or it's like you're like hundred like early hundreds of millions, right? But it must be like nine figures. Otherwise, like the the large corporate just cannot pay it any attention, right? And the other thing is like, and this one, you know, they didn't really like say, but they basically said, which is like it needs to be omni-channel by that point. Like it cannot be like digital only. Essentially, is what they said, right? I guess when as a brand operator, when you hear that, how does that make you think about like growth strategy, exit opportunities, things like that? How would you think uh, like brands should be thinking about that? Like given this sort of, and I mean, again, this is only like a handful of people who were at this dinner, right? Like there's a bunch of other ways that you can like actually like exit your business or like land the business or it could just be perpetually cash flowing or whatever. There's like lots of different ways to run your business, but this is one of them. And I wonder how do you think about that type of like information in the context of like how you're running your strategy and your marketing strategies going forward? Yeah. Regardless of what your plan is and or even your time horizon, your job is to grow, right? Your job is to sort of grow with the markets, grow with the category, set those benchmarks and continue to, you know, drive enterprise value for your organization. That said, it probably helps to have a vision. We're very fortunate that our our CEO and and, and founder, you know, we from the get from the get go knew exactly what he wanted. He before I, I think before he spent a, a penny on this business, he said this is going this business is going to be a hundred million dollar business. So for for him and sort of like the the culture and the DNA of this of everything that we do is centered around. How do we get to a hundred and cross a hundred million? And so it 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 sets those guardrails. I, I, I that has to happen from the beginning. If you don't have that, then you might miss the boat on like that first part of the barbell, and you like get up here and you're halfway through and you can't really go back. So then it's like okay, I have to now get to the end, right? And I think with that, you need a checklist. We've also you know, we've had good advisors and good people in, in our circles that have helped us really build a checklist. And, it, you know, when we look at what is achievable, what are the resourcing that's required to hit some of those milestones, we kind of map that out into a multi-year plan. And from there, it's just execution. I think like to give you a very tangible example, in order for us to be a $100 million a year 12, trailing 12 months revenue business, we knew we needed to be omni-channel, right? We're like, okay, we're meta ads and yeah, pay, yeah, yeah. either acquisition driver, you know, but we're going to need a little bit more help. We're going to need a little bit more um, and we need to be everywhere. So we started to focus on Amazon next. We're like, okay, let's get on Amazon. Can we drive incremental revenue from Amazon? Check. Hit that checkbox. We did that in 2022. Where like 2022, we were, we rolled out Amazon and we put some effort and Amazon went from like zero to now being about, you know, north of 10 to 15% of our total business, right? In terms of revenue. So it, it's meaningful now. The next thing in our check, like our checklist with retail. And so in 2023, we set out to get into 
two specific retail locations. And we hit those, right? We worked with, with a team, a broker that helps sort of build and close those relationships. They've been helpful in guiding through the process, understanding what is the retailers, you know, what does success look like? How do we read between the lines, right? Because there's some things that are just unspoken truths and unspoken sort of goals that are set and we're there, right? And when we, when we look at 2024, the next thing on our list is stuff like international. It's stuff like having recurrent revenue, driving subscriptions. And so, you know, for us, we have, in order to get to that other end of the barbell that you mentioned earlier, we have a checklist and we have this multi-year plan. And every year we try to check at least one thing off that checklist, right? And, and you know, whether you like it or not, you have to look at this over the pace of years because totally. trying to squeeze it all in over the sake of a- There's no chance. There's no chance you're going to fail. You're absolutely going to fail. This retail experiment that we're in right now is a multi-year exercise. Amazon, same thing. Amazon didn't go overnight in 2022, just blow up. It's still to this- TikTok. Effort, taking a lot of time. TikTok, man, TikTok. TikTok has been like just up and down. Probably three down. years, right? Three years, three years trying to crack TikTok. And now it's like, finally, just out of blue, November, it just like shot up. It's our fastest growing channel, right? But yeah, I would say how we've been operating and what's worked for us is have a vision from the start, know on which end of the spectrum you want to be in, have a checklist that's going to like tick off the boxes for the both parties on the extreme ends, and then just start to map out a multi-year plan with the functional leadership team and say like, okay, what's achievable this year? What are the resourcing resources that we need to have and bring on to the team and just get to work? Uh, it's another reason why like where, you know, people are in awe. It's like, you guys are so like, you drive so much revenue and profit, but your team is like, you have, you have, you don't have a team. You're small, you're a small group. It's like, yeah, we're very intentional about bringing on the people that are going to help us get closer to checking off those boxes in, in that checklist. It keeps overhead down. It keeps us, you know, or it keeps our margins healthy. It keeps us first order profitable. We're a bootstrap company. So, you know, for us, we just have those fundamentals and that's been helpful. I think, you know, there's still a lot of work to do, but that would be my advice basically. Yeah. To that makes, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And interestingly, it's like exactly the same in B2B for what little it's worth. Like we just went through planning for next year. And I basically, I usually do two years ahead. So it's like, and then based on two years ahead, what needs to be true next year, based on what needs to be true next year, what are the sets of activities we need to start now? And so like for us, for example, it's like, I want to be like selling enterprise in 25. Um, and because otherwise, basically it's going to like the amount of pain we'll have in hitting our number for 25 if we are selling only like what I would call M, like SMB and mid-market is like very high pain, right? And so it's it was very interesting because like knowing that I need to do that like 15 months from now, there's a certain set of actions I start to take today, right. but it doesn't distract the execution, right? It's like, hey, this is still the priority for the next 12 months, but here's like the seeds we need to plant then like by mid of the year, like it'll start to like germinate. Then by the end of the year, it'll be a sapling, you know, like you have to like yeah. know on the order of like years, like what is the way to 
validate and test like you guys are doing new product planning right and it's like that's also multi-year and so yeah i i find that i find it so i find it so interesting that like the only way you build a big business is like you have to have a plan for like what does the end state look like and then what are the things you need to stage at what point in time in order to get there yeah all right man well i'm gonna take an awesome episode i'm gonna take that go ahead I'm going to take a page out, out of your book there. And, uh, you know, for, for, we've been very like, okay, we know their end state and we've, but I'm going to, I'm going to try the two year exercise, two year planning exercise. We begin our, our yearly, we're in the middle of yearly planning and uh, we're having our discussions in about two weeks. So I'm going to come to the table with two year plan <laughs> yeah, and see what, see what we can start, you know, what seeds we can start planting. I, I love that idea. That's a, it's brilliant. Sweet dude. All right. Well, let's get Olivia onto the next one. I'm excited about this test. I think it's going to be super educational for people. Have a good one, man.